Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Pulled from the hottest topics coming across our news desk, I'm Elissa Branch, and this is Housing Wired Daily. Today's episode features an interview with Ryan Cook, owner of a HomeSmart affiliated brokerage in Massachusetts. During the episode, Cook discusses his experience working with MLSs and the challenges that they're having in enforcing the pocket listing ban. But before we listen, here's a brief word from our sponsor. At TMS, we believe in building relationships and helping to grow happiness. It's what we do best. Let us show you that efficient and transparent communication exists in subservicing. Switching from your current subservicer to TMS couldn't be easier. Learn more today at subservicing.themoneysource.com. Hello, Housing Wire listeners. Today, I'm joined with Ryan Cook, the owner of HomeSmart, affiliated brokerage in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Thanks for joining us on Housing Wire Daily, Ryan. Good morning. Of course. Well, listeners, Ryan has joined us to discuss a recent HW Plus article he was featured in as a source. The article, which was written by Housing Wire real estate editor and the host of HWD's Houses in Motion, Matthew Blake, discusses the policing of pocket listings. Ryan, the article is a part of a two-part series that examined the ramifications of the National Association of Realtors' 2020 decision to ban pocket listings. But before we dive in the article, I want to take us back to last year. When the ban was announced, what were your initial thoughts? I laughed. Okay. <laughs> it, and the reason being is uh, I'm a big proponent of property owners' rights. And really what it comes down to is if it all comes down to disclosure, if people are disclosing everything that goes on, like the, the challenge with pocket listings, it's policing them. How do you police them? How do you enforce it? And it really requires the agent community to police it. And quite frankly, most agents don't want to police it because they don't want the they don't want things turned on them at some point because everybody makes mistakes at some point and they don't want someone holding a grudge and next thing you know they're in trouble with the board or the MLS so people tend to look the other way so the challenge there is how is it enforced uh, but I laugh because it's it's just it's not enforceable it's not it may not be in the client's best interest. In the end, the client's best interest, if you inform them of their rights and have full disclosure, the client's best interest is up to the client. Yeah. My opinion. So so this is about regulation, it sounds like. It's all about, well, it's about regulation. It is about MLSs protecting their data sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, I mean, there has been an assault on the sources of data in the freeing of data to the general public, uh, well, I certainly don't think going back to the time of real estate listings being in the book and having to go down to the Realtor Association every other week to pick up the book uh, is the right way to go. There needs to be information shared openly with the public, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, is, this is more, in my opinion, uh, a protection of data. All right. Well, so now let's discuss the series I mentioned earlier. 
Part one looked at the history of the ban and the uh, enforcement problems it posed, and part two examines how MLSs have implemented the measure so far and legal challenges to, to banning it, essentially. You were featured in part two, which dives into the ban's complications. So, Ryan, have you implemented the measures into your business and what challenges have you faced so far? You kind of mentioned why you think regulation is such an issue. So I'm interested to seeing how that applies to your business. So within my business, so, you know, I have over 40 agents in my office right now. And my big thing is, it's just disclosure, 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 disclosure. We are uh, members of NAR. uh, So we certainly need to follow the guidance of our local board. Um, my main MLS, MLS PIN, is not owned and operated uh, by a realtor board. Uh, it is independently owned and works in in, um, in congruence with local boards in the area. So it's a little bit different. But for me, it's just with agents, disclosure, disclosure, disclosure. I mean, quite frankly, pocket listings, I think it's like the boogeyman. There really isn't much in the way of pocket listings going on. Do you have the occasional... Uh, agent who, you know, puts a message out to their, you know, their own list that they've cultivated of potential buyers or client list, and you know, maybe before it comes on, they blast out a message that, hey, you know, I'm going to be putting this listing on, you know, in the next week. If you're interested, let me know, and I'll get you in there early. Yeah, of course that goes on. Is that considered a pocket listing? I don't think so. Uh, but in the end, I don't understand how the board is there to determine what is right for the consumer. If I think it would be better implemented if the board came out with the disclosure so that if someone wanted to do a pocket listing, the agent had similar to an agency disclosure. Why, why wouldn't they be required to just have some sort of disclosure about uh, you know, listing their property or broadcasting the property to their own list for a certain period of time, the pluses and minuses of that, and then allowing the consumer to make a decision on their own? Okay. Well, so, okay. Now I want to switch uh, angles a little bit and um, I want to focus on something that was mentioned in the article. According to the article, as the owner of your own home smart affiliate brokerage, there are a few MLS bills you have to pay. Uh, One of these fees is paid to MLS PIN, which is one of the largest realtor owned multiple listing services in the nation. So how does working with an MLS impact your business and its procedures? You mentioned how um, you think it's up to uh, a client's disclosure on how they feel about pocket listings, but when working with MLS PIN, how does that impact what's going on with your procedures? Sure. Great question. I mean, part of the, again, it comes down to the individual brokerage and what their individual rules are and how they're enforced. So I'm, I'm a member in three different uh, MLSs. So MLS PIN is my main. As you said, it's one of the largest real-throne multiple listing services in the nation. We have a very high density of agents in Massachusetts. Uh, especially in the greater Boston area. And it covers basically from the Cape Cod Canal up to um, Cape Ann on the North Shore and all the way out to the edge of Springfield. So it, it covers a massive area within Massachusetts, highly highly densely populated areas. You can't be in business unless you're in the MLS. And it's not like I have a choice of MLS providers. So how does working with an MLS impact in business and its procedures? It impact, impacts everything. Uh, if they have a, if they come out with a standard where you like, for example, most MLSs have a rule that within 24 hours of signing a listing contract, the property needs to be listed on the multiple listing service. What if the client doesn't want it on there yet? What if they want a couple of weeks to prepare? Do you not sign the contract? Do you post date the contract? 
lot of MLSs will have a form about delayed entry or delayed listing. Um, so with a, whatever their policies and procedures are, it is my job as the broker to make sure that it's implemented because if it's not and they and they find out and they come after you, well, they can shut your whole office down. And it that doesn't just it doesn't just make the office like it makes business stop is what it does because then the agents can't operate. If if I get shut down as the broker, every agent under me gets shut down. So it can be a real hammer if you do something wrong. They're fairly lenient. MLS PIN is actually pretty easy to work with. Uh, I don't have any issues with them. Uh, they're not as stringent on enforcement of certain things mm-hmm. as Rhode Island Statewide, which is owned by the Rhode Island Association of Realtors, Cape Cod and the Islands, which is which is owned by Cape and Islands Association. You know, they're a bit more strict, but they also have different they offer different levels of service. So really depends on the MLS you're working with, what rules they have uh, and how they implement uh, enforcement of those rules. So I want to continue touching on this because in the article you contend, which you kind of mentioned in the last answer, um, MLS PIN, which is not owned by a NAR chapter, but with its own listing requirement, does not police the pocket listing ban. Uh, in fact, in the article you say it's not being enforced as someone has to report it. And even if they report something, everyone looks the other way. So can you dive deeper on this? You kind of touched on it briefly uh, in our last question, but why do you think MLS PIN and other listing services have trouble policing the ban? Um, do you think it's uh, an issue that's up to the discretion of the individual uh, person looking into um, pocket listings. And I did touch on this earlier. The challenge is MLS PIN, like any MLS, their staff is only so large, right? Yeah. And how do they go about policing it? Like they don't. So the way it used to work is in order to put a property on the multiple listing service, you had to submit your paperwork by fax. Mm-hmm. to the multiple listing service, and then they put it up. And then when obviously everything started moving towards the internet, they provided a, a, a web-based interface to be able to put it up there. So they don't know about it, and you don't actually send them any contracts. It is basically part of the agreement of being a member of the multiple listing service that you need to be doing things you know, the right way. So they really have no way of knowing unless agents report it. And as I stated earlier, most agents are very good and do the right thing. Mm-hmm. It's on rare occasions something goes wrong and they tend to look the other way because they just don't want problems. They don't want, you never know if you're going to run to a person who's having a bad day and next thing you know, they're making your life miserable. So most agents will give other agents the benefit of the doubt, um, professional courtesy, and may, may say something to you personally and say, hey, you know, you need to get that up there. But if someone's aggravated and they call in, next thing you know, you get a fine. So the challenge there is, is policing it. MLS doesn't have enough staff to police it. You're not submitting your contracts to the MLS in order for the get approval to put the listing up there. It's an on your honor system. And most agents want to do the right thing, realize sometimes people make mistakes or having a bad day. So they don't want to you know, nail someone to the wall uh, because one day they one having a bad day. Um, we know that just as MLS ownership and structure varies, so does enforcement among MLSs. In the article, you suggest it all comes down to leadership of the MLS and what they want to uphold. So also highlight that MLSs that do work directly with NAR are more likely to be compliant. So why do you believe this? Uh, so I can only go off of my experience working with different multiple listing services. Like I said, uh, 
the eastern half of Massachusetts MLS pin. Uh, it is not owned by uh, a local realtor board. Uh, it is a service contracted out to you know MLS Pinergy. A uh, little bit different. Um, where in Rhode Island, where I do quite a bit of business as well, uh, their local association owns it and they police it very strictly, very strictly. They also offer a lot more training through things. Same thing with Cape Cod and the islands. They do a lot more training. And I think it is because it is owned by the Realtor Association. They have members that they need to provide a level of service for. In Massachusetts, that's not the case. I mean, uh, Realtor members just get charged a different price than non-realtor members. And it's in the end, it's just a service as part of joining, uh, you know, being in Rhode Island and being on the board, which you have to be on. It's just a different requirement, different level of service because, you know, they're looking at it as, um, you know, these are our members, our, our realtor members where MLS PIN, not really. We're just, um, we're subscribers. Right. So, You've answered a lot of the questions about why um, MLSs need to either uh, pay attention to these pocket listings or why they're not enforceable based on regulations. So before we wrap today, is there anything else our audience needs to know about pocket listings, the ban, or MLSs in general? Honestly, it's just a matter of having a conversation on the consumer side, having a conversation with your agent and an honest conversation. What are the pluses? What are the minuses? Everybody's Everybody's individual individual needs are different. One of the folks, you know, some of the folks interviewed in that in the article um, out in the West Coast who are doing very you know ultra high end listings, they crave the privacy. They don't want to have their listing on the multiple listing service and everybody seeing their business. They they want the privacy. So if the consumer wants that privacy, why should they be forced to broadcast their listing on the multiple listing service, removing their privacy wishes? Um, have those conversations with your agents. What are the pluses? What are the minuses? What are you getting for it? Um, and are, in the end, is the agent able to perform and get your home in front of people who are able to purchase your home and close? That should be the biggest question that anybody answers. Well, I'm sure we're going to have a lot of answers from a lot of the people listening in on this and having differing opinions or that may just want to add to the conversation itself. So, Ryan, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for the opportunity, Elson. It was a great time. Of course. Listeners, if you are interested in HW Plus and reading this exclusive premium coverage, head over to housingwire.com and sign up now. Thanks for listening. Bye. On September 27th and 28th at the Omni Hotel in Frisco, Texas, Housing Wire will host its second annual event, which will be in person for the first time. Housing Wire Annual offers each guest the opportunity to gather with top industry professionals for exclusive content, technology demonstrations, and unbeatable networking. Find out more by going to the events tab on the Housing Wire site. You won't want to miss out on this event, so register by September 20th. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. I hope you have a great afternoon. If you haven't already, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on all the hottest stories crossing our news desk daily. The podcast is now available wherever you like to listen. Make sure to tune in tomorrow.